What is up, everybody? Welcome back to In My Non-Expert Opinion. Oh my gosh, I am so excited to be back. Like, welcome myself back to the show. I took about a month off from recording because I was going through so much transition with preparing for this four-month trip internationally with a group of people I didn't know in a setting I've never been to and just traveling after eight months of being home doing absolutely nothing. It was a lot of mental overwhelm. And then if any of you own your own business, you know that that's a whole ball of overwhelm in and of itself. So managing my business, managing this trip, managing my own stress levels, I just needed a break. And I'm telling you, this break is exactly what I needed because I am so much more clear headed. I have so many ideas for upcoming episodes. I have been recording behind the scenes, even though I was on a break, I was actually still recording episodes. So there is some amazing content coming out in the next few weeks. And I am just so excited to be back. So if you're new around here and you're a first time listener and you're like, what is she talking about? Like a trip and this and that. I am on a four month trip right now with a group called remote year. So you travel with these remote workers for four months and you go to different countries each month. So my first stop is Cape Town, South Africa. And I don't want to give too much away because I may have something cooking right now that is going to come out very, very soon about my travels. But what I will tell you so far about South Africa is it is amazing. The people are so unbelievably nice. Everyone is so warm and welcoming. And it's not what you see in the media. I know a lot of times when people hear South Africa, they think, corruption, you know, violence, politics, like all these issues. And it, it makes it seem like people are just like raging in the streets and everything's on fire. I would argue that's happening in America right now. I would say America feels more unsafe and on fire than the countries that I'm going to right now. In fact, I actually feel safer now in Cape Town than I did in my own country. I saw that there was a shooting over the 4th of July at a freaking parade. My friend said she heard gunshots outside of a conference she was at in LA. I mean, it has been wild hearing about what's been going on in America since I've been gone, which has only been seven days. And I just feel so much more calm. I think, again, this is a mix of being away from that energy, but also finally traveling with a group of like-minded people. And like I said, I'm going to update you on more of the experience, but That's what I wanted to say off the bat is it's not unsafe. Well, not where I am. We're in a very nice part of town. So of course, like any other city, if you go to unsafe spots, especially at night, it's going to be unsafe. So I have been loving it. I am loving the food. Oh my gosh. I've been eating out every single day. I did groceries twice and I haven't cooked one single thing except eggs one morning. I have literally been eating out every meal. It's unbelievably cheap. Like I didn't realize how cheap it was. I think it was just in my mind, I thought it was like a regular city because it is a very cosmopolitan city. So I was expecting like city prices and maybe a little cheaper. And it is unreal. I got an acai bowl the other day with all these toppings for $4. Ubers everywhere are literally two to $3. My yoga class to rent a mat was less than a dollar. So yeah, my budget is very happy here. I am living like royalty here. And I am socializing a lot. There is a group of about, I want to say like 29, if not 30 of us here. And then another group, which is doing a 12 month trip joined us. So there's about nine of them. So there's like 40 of us in a Slack channel and someone is doing something at all times. Like someone's going to the market, someone's going on a hike, someone's going to the art gallery, someone's going to a pub, 
So no matter what, I have been finding things to do, which has actually been a bit overwhelming. So I am going to update you on what it's been like fully adjusting and acclimating to this schedule and time zone and all that stuff. Like I said, stay tuned. But it actually leads me into what this episode is about, which is remote work. I know many of you are wondering how to work remote, especially as many workforces start going fully remote. For example, my old company went fully remote. They completely shut down their physical headquarters. My sister works in a hybrid role and going to the office is actually optional. Airbnb announced that they have a full remote work policy now where everyone just works remotely. And I feel like the pandemic really changed how we fundamentally view work. So if you've been wanting to work remote or you're trying to make plans to, this episode is definitely for you. I'm talking about how to find visas for work abroad, how to stay in certain countries for a longer period of time, where you can live and how to find out where to live, where to work, and just straight up really scrappy tips. So again, if you want to work remote and especially live abroad, this episode is for you. First things first, I want you all to know this episode is heavily geared towards American citizens, as that's a majority of my audience. So when I start talking about these visas and other tips, it may not apply to you. So the first visa I want to talk about is a tourist or visitor visa. When you go abroad, you should definitely check out the government website and check out the visa section to see what visa requirements apply to you. There's almost always a tourist or visitor visa, and it allows you to usually stay for 30 days or longer. And these visas are either free or low cost. For example, when you go to the UK as an American, the tourist visa is actually six months long, and you can do that again later. So it's not just a one-time visa. This costs usually around £100. And again, check out the website because the pandemic changed a lot of these visas, especially the time lengths and the cost. So things may have changed. In Europe, there's an area called the Schengen Zone, and the Schengen Zone is made up of 26 countries, including Greece, Denmark, Spain, Germany, France, Italy, Portugal, etc. I linked a resource in the show notes for you to check out, but really what you need to know about the Schengen Zone as an American citizen is you can stay there for 90 days without paying for a visa. So it's called a tourist or visitor visa. And again, 90 days, that's three whole months. So you could do one month in one country, three months in one country, or just visit different cities all over the Schengen zone for three whole months. Now, if I were you and I was doing this and I were to go back in time and do my first remote work trip abroad, I would either spend one month in a new country or just stay in one country and then travel to different cities like every few weeks. I love Spain. You guys know I love Spain. I'll be in Valencia in August. So I would love to stay in Spain for three months and just go to different cities in Spain so that I could really immerse myself in the culture and language. So that would be my recommendation if you're like, I don't know where to start. Um, I think it's a little chaotic to hop around so many different countries because you're dealing with different languages, you're dealing with different cultures, different food, different customs. So if you're, if you're wanting that, then you would really like bopping around. But I think if you're a first time traveler or working remote for the first time, I would recommend staying in one country and then just exploring the cities. Now, some countries have created new visas just for remote workers or people wanting to explore. For example, Australia has the working holiday visa, and that's what I did. You have to do it before you're 30. Some countries do allow it if you're up to 35. And what you do is you get a visa to work in the country. And as the name says, you work and holiday. 
the visa is a whole year long and you can bop around the country and even extend it by doing specific work. So just some background, when I went, that visa was probably the easiest visa I ever got. I literally applied online and within one minute it was approved and I had an Australian visa. So I waited a year to get over there to save money and you can wait a year as well like me or you can just go immediately. But once you're over there, it gives you the freedom to work for Australian companies. So that's the difference between a visa that is not a work visa and a tourist visa. A tourist visa, you are not allowed to legally work in that country. For example, you can't just go to a cafe and work in Italy unless you have a work visa. The working holiday visa in Australia does allow you to actually work there. So when I got there, I could work for an Australian restaurant, an Australian bar, an Australian hotel. And then the whole goal is to travel as well. So you'll meet a lot of backpackers, a lot of people on the same visa. Every single city you go to in Australia, a lot of people are on this visa. So if you're trying to travel and do it easy and work, I would highly, highly recommend that visa. Another really cool thing with the working holiday visa is like I said, you can extend it, but you do have to do specific work. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's called the 88 days. And you have to do 88 days of either farm work or rural type of work in another part of the country. So the whole point of this is to help in areas that need it. So not Sydney, not Perth, not Melbourne. You're going to have to go to a rural area and you're likely going to have to work on a farm. But Americans, you can actually do hospitality or tourism work. It just has to be in a different zip code. So you do 88 days of work there and then you could get a second year visa and again, the pandemic changed a lot of things. So now they even have an option for you to get a third year visa. So there's always ways you can extend your time there. But if you're just looking to go for one year abroad, meet other backpackers, travel and work, I highly recommend the working holiday visa in Australia. Another country that created a digital nomad visa is Portugal. So they have something called the D7 visa. And there are always requirements for visas, remember, so you have to include your proof of income, criminal history, you have to show your accommodation, what you do for work, you likely need client referrals and portfolios and testimonials, but once you get it, you can stay there for an entire year. So again, look at the visas and check out the government websites for each country because they will give you exactly what you need. There's usually agencies that will help you as well. For example, Germany, that was probably the hardest visa ever because I didn't speak the language. I was in a small town. We were in lockdown and I had no idea all the requirements and hoops that I had to jump through to get that visa. So I actually had to hire an agency to help me. So if you're looking at the website for these government officials and saying, wait a second, I have no idea what this means. I don't know how to apply. I would recommend hiring someone to help you so that you don't get denied because if you get denied, it's going to get flagged in their system. And then when you apply again, they're going to see that there was a denial and it probably won't help your chances. So I'd rather spend some money the first time if I don't know what I'm doing, hire a professional and then apply so that you can just get approval the first time. So just to recap, Australia is definitely the easiest visa. I found Germany to be the hardest one but also you can do visitor and tourist visas so you could travel around places like Spain or France or Germany, etc. for 90 days. But just remember, you cannot work legally for those countries' companies when you're on a visitor visa. And then in the UK, you can do it for six months. So if you're trying to visit London or Manchester as an American, you have up to six months to do all that. 
Now, there are other visas that allow you to stay longer or do different type of work, like teaching English abroad. You could go to school and get a master's or a new type of degree. You could be a nanny or what they call an au pair. And I think teaching English is actually the most popular one. I know so many people that have taught English abroad, especially Spain, because they need native English speakers in those countries to teach English. But one thing to note is do not expect to be rolling in the dough. I know that people that did teach English abroad were honestly really broke and they had to find other ways to make income. And this is why I think building a skill set that you can use online is key so that you can work anywhere. And just a reminder, most places have these visitor and tourist visas. So when you're quote unquote working on those, what I'm saying is you're doing online work. So you're not actually working for a company in that country. You cannot go get a job again at a cafe in Spain on a tourist visa. I mean, illegally you could, but I would not recommend it. For example, in this remote year trip that I'm doing, I'm working online doing my podcast coaching and podcast the entire time that I'm in those countries, but I'm not going to go work for a bar or restaurant in that specific country. Okay, so where to stay? Because I know this is the biggest question mark, especially as Americans, You guys would be shocked at some of the places I've stayed or how I've been able to stay in certain countries because we're so used to signing year-long leases, two-year leases, living in an apartment or living with a partner or a roommate. And so when you live and work abroad, a lot of things change. And I think this is where people get hung up. So I want to walk you through probably about four different accommodation experiences that you could use when you go abroad. So the first one is hostels. I would say these are the most common if you're trying to save money and meet people. I always use Hostel World to see ratings and reviews, and I check out the pictures. I know that pictures sometimes are deceiving, so I also go to Google Images and look at the pictures just to see what type of pictures that users actually uploaded. Definitely check out the reviews, and what I love about Hostel World is it shows you what age range the reviewer is and what country they're from. So that really helps me understand if all of a sudden I'm seeing, you know, people leave reviews that are 16 to 18 years old. That's probably not the hostel I want to stay at. So if you're genuinely trying to work and stay away from party hostels, you need to look for that in the reviews and just ask people. Also look for something called youth hostels. I was under the impression that just meant youth like up to 30 because a lot of visas are from 18 to 30 year olds. So I thought youth hostel meant just for people 18 to 30. What I didn't realize is it actually really means people that are teenagers. So I accidentally booked a youth hostel once and was staying with a bunch of teenagers that were like on a soccer team. And I immediately checked out because obviously that was not where I wanted to sleep and spend the weekend in Barcelona. I've also spent a weekend in Budapest staying in a hostel that was situated on top of a nightclub. Yes, on top of a nightclub. I went to bed around 5 a.m. and I would hear thumping, loudspeakers, people screaming all night long. It's not exactly ideal for working, but if you're trying to have fun, go abroad, meet people, and party, then yes, look for a party hostel. Also, something that's really cool is that you can work for accommodation. So I did social media management for a hostel once in Cairns, Australia, in exchange for a month-long stay. So instead of paying out of pocket or paying for each night, I was able to do that social media job and be able to stay for a longer period of time. You could do more admin stuff like event management. You can work at the bar. You can work at reception. You can always ask if there's other jobs too. And this again is where if you have a skill set online, you can propose it to them. This was not a job that the hostel advertised. 
I just reached out with my resume and said, hey, I see you have a social media page. I have a social media background. What do you think? Like, could we do an exchange of some sorts? And they're like, actually, this is perfect. We're looking for someone to help with our social media. So I was able to have a room in the hostel just for doing social media for them. So I would find out what your skill set is and see how you could turn it into something valuable for wherever you're staying, because you could end up doing this for a hotel as well, which is my next accommodation tip is hotels. Now, I do not see digital nomads do this often because a lot of people travel with the intent to meet other digital nomads and nomads don't really stay at hotels because they're so private. I think hotels are better for a short stay. If you're just going for a weekend or maybe you just want to upgrade your experience for a little bit, then I think hotels are great. But if you're trying to live and work abroad for a longer period of time, you're not really going to meet people at hotels and they're not really geared towards digital nomad work. If you are going to stay at a hotel, I know Hotwire is a really great site that provides deals as well as booking.com. But again, I've only really done this in situations where the accommodation isn't what I thought, like that youth soccer team at the hostel, or if I just wanted a hotel for the weekend, like a quick trip with a friend. That's when I would recommend hotels. But if you're someone that's trying to go on a 30, 60, 90 day trip, a hotel is not only going to be more expensive, but you're going to have a really hard time meeting people because you're just locked away in your room and there's no meeting space. There's no social space. There's like nothing really to build any type of rapport with other people because hotels usually are meant for people just traveling through or quick business. Now, going back to hostels, those are meant to meet people. So there's often social events. They do karaoke nights. They have different bar nights and game nights. They'll do walking tours, bicycle tours. And a lot of these things are free or low cost. I've met some of the best people at hostels. And again, Americans, I know what your perception is. You probably saw the movie Hostel and you're like, aren't they dirty and scary and like run down and sketchy? No, I always try to share hostels when I go abroad so you can see how nice some of them are. And that's again why I use that site Hostel World, because I like to look for ratings that are 9.0 or above that show me the rooms and everything. And I can see, okay, this is actually a really nice hostel. I've stayed at hostels that have rooftops and rooftop bars. I remember actually staying a hostel in Prague in the Czech Republic, and I thought I was accidentally at a hotel because the beds were so nice. They had like red silk sheets. We had a rooftop. We had a private, beautiful shower. And I was like, did we accidentally book the wrong thing? And then we got there and they're like, no, this is the St. Christopher's Hostel. So I was really shocked to see that because I know as an American, the perception of hostels is that they're dirty and run down, but that's just not true. The next thing is Airbnbs. So I know this is becoming really popular for long-term stays. Just keep in mind, Airbnb does have cleaning fees and other fees, but if you want more privacy or you're traveling with a friend, I do think Airbnbs are a great option. I usually like to book Airbnbs if I'm doing a weekend trip. And as I get older, I definitely feel the need for more privacy. So I would definitely consider a one to two month stay in an Airbnb, but I also wouldn't mind a hostel and just booking a private room. So that's something to consider too, is hostels, you don't always need to book, you know, a 16 bunk bed type of room. You could book a private room or just get one with twin beds and travel with a friend. And that's why I like to do that in hostels, but Airbnbs are also great. 
And I think what you're starting to notice, especially as Airbnb announced their own workforce going remote, is that long-term stays are becoming really common. So people aren't just going for three to four nights anymore. They're usually booking like one to two months. And remember, just like Walmart or Sam's Club, when you buy in bulk, you get a discount. So instead of booking three nights at an Airbnb for a weekend getaway and paying, you know, $150 a night, if you're booking for 30 days, you're going to get a discount because you just guaranteed that host a secured 30 days of income. So usually they give you a discount per night because of all that financial stability that you just created from booking a month long stay. Now, again, you need to look at reviews. You need to look at pictures. You need to see what people say and check the location. My sister and I booked an Airbnb that we thought was on the beach. We thought it was this like beautiful villa. We were like, oh my God, we just booked the best Airbnb for a really affordable price in Ibiza, Spain. And we did not really do a lot of research on where it was because it just said 10 minutes from the beach. And so we're assuming, okay, cool, 10 minute bike ride, 10 minute walk. And we got there and it wasn't even its own Airbnb. It was a room in someone's house and they had just had a party the night before. And so when we walked in, the house was absolutely trashed. And then we were just supposed to stay on a room connected to the house. And it was not 10 minutes from the beach. It was probably like a 10 minute car ride from the beach or actually 10 minutes even. I do not think it was 10 minutes is the point. And it was not what we thought at all. It was in the middle of nowhere. There was no one around, no grocery shops, no cafes, no restaurants. And this was just because they took really good pictures and the reviews were okay, but we were just so desperate to find an Airbnb in Ibiza. And that was something that we immediately regretted because we canceled the Airbnb and we lost all our money. By the way, we also booked it for five days. So we lost so much money because again, Airbnb does have really tight refund policies and cancellation policies to protect the hosts in instances like that, where if people are booking last minute that the host just doesn't lose all the money. So yeah, my sister and I lost a lot of money on that because we were just really impulsive and we just automatically assumed an Airbnb would be nicer than anything else. And it was not a great experience at all. Um, we, I'm going to have my sister on to tell a story about that because we basically made up that our dad was sick, hoping that they would give us a refund. And that did not happen at all. So again, we just lost so much freaking money and it's something I, I still regret. And that happened about a year ago. And the last thing is shared flats. So when I say flats, I mean apartments and I'm not one of those people that's like, oh my God, I lived abroad for so long. I forgot how to say things. I just got so used to saying flats that I forget that we, that sometimes you guys are like, wait, what's a flat? A flat is just an apartment. So you're just subleasing a room and apartment. For example, in Sydney, Australia, the flat scene is wild in Bondi Beach. You don't have to sign leases. You don't have to do tours. You don't have to talk to a landlord or anything. You literally meet people in Facebook groups in whatever town or city you want to live in. You message them if they're advertising their room. And then if it works out, you just send them the deposit, which they call bond. And then you just coordinate what date you're moving in and when, and then you move in. Then when you move out, it's the same process. You find someone in a Facebook group, they send you the deposit and you move out. There's no paperwork, no contracts, no walkthroughs, like there's nothing there. I remember thinking this is the craziest thing in the world. I thought I was getting scammed for a second and I had to ask all my friends in Australia, 
is that actually like, is this how you really do things? Or am I like living in a weird area? And they're like, no, it's because Australia is so full of those working holiday visas that everyone is a backpacker. So it's almost pointless to have long-term leases because no one lives anywhere long-term. Everyone is intentionally going there, trying to bop around different cities. So these long-term leases that we sign as Americans that are 12 months plus, that's like not a thing in certain apartments, especially in Bondi Beach where everyone's an expat or a backpacker. So that's just something to consider when you're moving abroad. Even signing a lease is different. And that's something that I really had to adjust to and become comfortable that like, yeah, there's no paperwork and it's a lot of trust and a lot of hoping that people will send you the deposit. And if not, you're just going to have to figure out something else. But yeah, it's very flexible, very loosey goosey. It's not something that's like tightened up with all these contracts. But on the flip side of that, it depends what country you're in. Germany was really strict. I had to show proof of where I lived. I had to prove that I was with my partner because for a second we were trying to get a partner type of visa. We had to show photos. We had to have people write in like kind of cases for why we were together. It was absolutely wild. And that was like sometimes just to be able to get a flat. So it does depend what country you're in and what type of visa you're going for. I also know the UK's partner visa is really hard and really complicated. My friend is married to a guy from England, and I thought once you got married, you just automatically get a visa. That's not true. So anyone that's listening that you're like, oh my God, who cares about all these visas? I'll just marry someone that's foreign and get the visa. That's not how it works. I have actually a lot of friends that have moved abroad and married foreigners, and it's been hell to get a foreign partner visa. You have to get a lawyer. You have to spend thousands of dollars. You have to prove your relationship. It's not as easy as it sounds. So just remember when you're applying for flats or trying to sublease rooms, it might be a little more difficult depending on what country you're going to. So remember how I said I was having a bit of trouble adjusting to the new schedule and time zone over here and just figuring out how to socialize and balance my business? Well, what was really interesting the other day was I opened up my email inbox and I had all these consults and leads booked for my one-on-one coaching. And I was like, this doesn't really make sense because I haven't been working. I intentionally took off two weeks, like blocked off my calendar from any meetings because I knew I was going to have to pack and prepare for this trip. And I know myself when I get to a new country, I need time to actually settle in, go grocery shopping, figure out my surroundings, find a routine. So I gave myself two weeks off. So I was like, how are all these leads and consults coming in? Like I've done zero promotion on social media. I've been posting stories only about my trip. Like it has nothing to do with podcasting. And I realized it's because I was a guest on other podcasts. And the reason I was able to be a guest on other podcasts is because I have a podcast and most of these people I coordinated podcast swaps with. So it just got my wheels spinning of how easy it's been to not only take two weeks off, but feel stable and secure in my income and the way that I'm bringing in clients without having to post a thousand pieces of social content, send out some massive email campaign just because I'm enrolling people or constantly being on Instagram Live or in my stories. This whole concept of working smarter and not harder is literally my go-to mantra for 2022. So if you've been feeling a little stuck in your business or you're trying to grow or launch your business and you're like, nothing is working and I feel overwhelmed by social media, the constant algorithm updates, which Instagram continues to roll out by the way, or you're like, I'm overwhelmed by copywriting and I I just feel like I need a different way to express myself, it might be podcasting. 
Podcasting has hands down been the most fun way to share my voice. It gives me much more creative freedom. As you see in this episode, I'm talking about remote work, which has absolutely nothing to do with podcast coaching. I get to talk about whatever I want to talk about while also building relationships and community. Most of the people I work with find me from this podcast, and I'm able to build a deeper relationship because of the amount of time I invest into telling stories and putting into this podcast, which means my listeners get to connect with me every week for an hour plus. So if you're like, um, yes, this sounds much better than posting like 30 second reels all the time and trying to edit and add the captions and the music and then have only three likes on it. Trust me, I've been there. And that is why I'm a big proponent of making your podcast your main channel and then using other channels like Instagram and TikTok to distribute it out. So if you're feeling like podcasting is definitely your next step or you want to explore what it would be like, I invite you to either book a consult with me. I will plug that in my show notes. It's just a free 20 minute chat and we can see where you're at and what makes sense for you in terms of podcasting. Or if you're like, no, this actually sounds amazing and I want to work with you, then my one-on-one coaching is open right now. So I will plug in the link for that in my show notes. You can check it out, fill out an application. We can hop on a quick phone call and see if one-on-one podcast coaching is for you. All right, let's jump back into this episode about remote work 101. Now, if you travel with a group like I am with Remote Year, they actually take care of accommodation and we're staying in local flats. So I'm going to have my own room in a shared apartment. And then when we bop around to the new countries, we're getting shared flats in that spot which is really cool because I don't have to think about accommodation and I'm with a group of like-minded people. So that's why I booked this trip because I've actually traveled abroad by myself for a long period of time and switching hostels every, you know, three to five days got really exhausting, packing up all my stuff and then taking a train or a flight somewhere else and then adjusting to the culture, the prices, the time zone, the currency. It was too much. And I was like, when I do this again, I'm staying for longer periods of time And I'm going to try to go with people that are remote workers, which is why I booked this trip. Now, as I was saying, the world is evolving to accommodate digital nomads. Portugal built a whole town in Madeira that has that digital nomad visa, but that town was made essentially to attract digital nomads. They have accommodation, they have co-working spaces, Wi-Fi is everywhere, and it's basically known as the digital nomad town of Portugal. And again, these are things I didn't know until I just started researching. I had no idea Portugal had such a big freelancer community. And when my friend knew I wanted to travel abroad again, she's like, you should check out Lisbon and other parts of Portugal because there's tons of people there that are working remote. And I'm like, really? I just never heard that. I know Bali's a big remote spot. I know Costa Rica's a big remote spot. And she's like, no, really look into Portugal. And then I realized Portugal is actually one of the, the biggest countries right now in Europe that's supporting digital nomads. So if you want to live abroad and work abroad, maybe check out Portugal. Now, I know this part two is where Americans start to hop on the what if train. What if you need to move out? What if you need to change your move in date? What if something breaks in the house? Who's responsible for what? What do you mean there's no lease? What if the landlord da da da? And this is where we talk ourselves out of traveling. So this is where I encourage you to take a deep breath and relax And know that you can ask the person you're talking to all these questions. And remember that travelers and digital nomads are very flexible. We're very resourceful. We always figure things out. And we cannot let that what if train stop you. So if you're supposed to move in on, you know, May 1st, and then the person says, oh, sorry, I actually am moving out May 3rd. 
Do not freak out. This is why I like having the option of hostels or staying with a friend or doing some type of shared flat situation. Something that I'm like, okay, it's fine if the date got moved back one or two days. I have a hostel situation. I can stay at a hotel on, you know, book a quick deal on hotwire.com and then figure it out. So that's something I would say is if you are traveling and you like things to be hard, fast, written in concrete, signed, sealed, delivered with, you know, a black ballpoint pen. I don't know if digital nomad life is going to be easy for you because you do have to be very adaptable and very flexible because things change, especially with the pandemic. We saw that, right? I had all these plans in Australia. I thought I was going to live in three more places. I had all these ideas for jobs. I thought I was going to live in certain flats. And everything changed. I had to change where I was living, what type of work I was doing, how I was making income. And I actually think because of that experience, that's why I have such a, I think, really great foundational skill for what I do now is I can adapt quickly and be very flexible. And so I would encourage you if you're thinking of traveling remote to be in the mindset of being a shapeshifter and being okay with things not going exactly to plan. Nothing ever goes exactly to plan, and that's going to happen when you travel, so you just need to stay open. So now I know some of you are feeling convinced, and you're like, okay, I know how to get a visa, I know where to live, but Chelsea, remote work, like, I need a desk. Where on earth do I work? Like, in my bedroom, outside on the beach? Like, I don't get where you actually work. So I would say the first thing that you should check out as a remote worker is co-working spaces. The way I find them is good old Google. Guys, Google has usually everything you need. There's also apps like the Coworker app or Work Anywhere. And some places are franchises that are all over the place. For example, WeWork. I used to actually work at a WeWork in Chicago. They have them in New York, LA. They have them all over. And I was surprised to see how many there were when I went abroad. I remember one in Hamburg. I remember in Berlin. I remember seeing one, I think even in Denmark, like they're just all over. So search if you're, if there's franchises, you can see where those are. And you could always get a membership to one of these to be able to work all over. For example, the WeWork, you could actually get a membership in the US and then use it elsewhere. I also love supporting local co-working spaces. So they might be a bit smaller, but then you're supporting a local business and they're more accommodating, I feel like, where sometimes these bigger co-working spaces are just trying to get people in and buy memberships and fill the seats, where I feel like the local ones, just like local businesses, usually help the customer a bit more. So check out local co-working spaces, like literally Google the term local co-working and you'll find some really awesome co-working spaces. I also love to work at cafes because I'm the type of person that needs stimulation around me to get any work done. So I like to go to cafes. I have to check the times that they open and close so that I'm not, you know, running between client calls and how long it takes to get there. So I made this mistake in Malaga, Spain. I went to a cafe that I thought was close to my accommodation. And then I had a client call and I wanted to come back to the hostel to do it in a quieter space. And it took me so long to get back. I realized walking was really far. I didn't have a bike. So I tried to rent one of those scooters. Oh my God, the scooter shut down because you can't scoot in certain zones. And then I had to walk like 45 minutes all around trying to park the scooter because you can only park it in certain places. And I ended up being an hour late to my client call. And this was all because I just didn't check how long it would take to get to the cafe and back. And I just assumed because it was closer, quote unquote, on the map that it wouldn't be that hard to get back, but it actually was. 
You also want to check if they have free Wi-Fi and then charging outlets, obviously. I know that seems obvious, but I have been to one or two cafes where they're not trying to accommodate workers. They're trying to accommodate people that are just going to have a coffee and talk. Um, actually, Sun Life Organics in Austin, Texas, it says no Wi-Fi. Talk to your mom. So I want you to make sure that when you're going to work at a cafe that there is Wi-Fi and there's a charger and that you do have a space to work. I, again, love working at cafes, but I also need to familiarize myself before going, meaning I like to look at Google Images and see how many seats there are. So if it's, you know, a really small cafe with three tables, it's pretty unlikely that I'm either A, going to get to sit down or B, going to get to sit down for a long period of time. And I don't like going for only one hour. I usually go to cafes so I can set up, start writing, maybe do a few client calls, wrap up my work. I usually spend like four hours at cafes. So if it's a cafe where they're trying to turn people over and get you in and out, or they're like, hey, you can't sit there for three hours, you don't want to waste your time getting all the way there. And again, check your schedule. I, I can't express this enough. Like if a cafe closes at two and you have a call at 2.30, but you're 45 minutes from your accommodation, you're going to be late to your call. So just make sure that you know the cafe open and close times so that you're not running around like I did in Spain and then being an hour late to your call. Now let's get into some scrappy tips. Let's say you're staying in a hostel and you have to teach a masterclass and you're like, Chelsea, I'm in a four bunk bed hostel. I have to teach a 90 minute masterclass and I'm in a hostel. Like, where am I supposed to do this? There's no quiet spots. There's a kitchen. It's super loud. There's a bar. Like there's nowhere to work. This is where you have to get really scrappy and resourceful. So I'm going to take you back to Byron Bay when I was staying in a hostel with my ex and my best friend and her boyfriend. And we were all kind of working and partying and traveling. And I was teaching a masterclass and I'm like, I don't know where to teach. Like, this is not a place to do this. So I was like, okay, I need to find a quiet spot. Where can I go? What can I do? And what I did was I asked the front desk if I could use an empty room to do my class. And they're at first they were like, wait, like what? What do you mean teach a class? And I just had to explain, like I teach online courses and classes and I need a quiet space without distractions because I'm also recording this class and I'm going to sell it at a later date. So I can't have people, you know, screaming in the background. And they're like, actually, sure. Like we have an empty room right here. There's no one checking in until noon. You can use it from 10 to 11. So this is where you just have to ask people for favors and make things work for you. I also remember at one hostel, they had this yoga tent in the back and no one really went there unless they were practicing yoga. But usually in the mornings, people weren't using it. I find a lot of hostel goers like to sleep in or they like to go to the beach first thing in the morning. So this yoga tent was completely empty. So I used to teach online yoga and I would go to that yoga tent and just teach without anybody interrupting. Now, I also remember a time where I had to get really scrappy and make a desk out of a stool on a rooftop because there was nowhere else I could go. So I was working on this rooftop at a hostel and I realized I had a client call. My room was really loud. So I was like, I'm just going to find a quiet corner in this rooftop. And then I just took a stool, put my laptop on, on top of it. And then I took another stool to sit down on. And then I just tried to make it look like I wasn't on a hostel rooftop. And then I did my, my client call. So you do have to get really scrappy. Um, I also remember one time in Byron Bay, I was on the top bunk bed and I basically put a do not disturb sign on my door. And I told anyone that I was friends with, like, don't knock because I'm teaching a class. And then I had my ring light set up on the bed 
And then I just had my laptop on my lap. And then the, the background of the wall behind me was white. So it actually looked like I was kind of in a professional space, but I was actually on the top bunk in a hostel in the middle of Byron Bay. So yeah, you do have to get scrappy sometimes. You might have to reschedule things. This is why when I started working remote abroad, I was okay with starting small because I was like, I need a smaller group to be able to, you know, adjust with me if I need to change the time of a workshop or if I need to get a little scrappy and it might take me like 30 minutes to get somewhere that everyone's a little more flexible versus teaching a group of 500 people. That's pretty hard to get 500 people to adapt and move their schedule with you. But if it's like five people, it's like, okay, that might be a little more manageable. But this actually brings me to my next section on essential tips. Your time zone is obviously going to change when you travel. So what I would suggest is getting scheduling software like Calendly or Acuity and ensure that your time zone is updated and that you have your working hours reflected in that country. So you don't want to accidentally book a call at 1 a.m. or have a client book a call at 5 a.m. and then do that whole email dance of back and forth trying to figure out a time and date when you could just get a software that will calculate it for you and it will show the client their time zones that work with them. I just had to do this recently. When I was going on my remote year trip, I was like, wait a second, I have clients that booked with me in the morning. That means when I go abroad, that time is going to change. Like, am I going to be working at midnight or are they going to have to take a call at like five in the morning? That's obviously not going to work. So we had to sit down and change all my hours in my scheduling software. So this is something that I think a VA can help with, or if you can do it really quickly, go ahead and do it. But you just have to be cognizant of that. So if you feel like you're going to forget, put it in your calendar, make an alarm, do something. And just remember, even if you're only going to a country like two countries over, sometimes the time zone will still change like an hour. This happened to me a lot when I was bopping between the UK and the Schengen zone in Europe. There was like a one hour difference. And I was like, wait, I thought they were the same time zone. And I kept getting everything mixed up. Then daylight savings is a whole other ballgame. Daylight savings is not the same as it is in the U.S. A lot of times people do it on different dates and different times than we do. And they have different seasons. Like Australia's summer is actually our winter and vice versa. So you have to keep that in mind when you're scheduling things with clients is like they might be on summer vacation, even though for you in the States, it's December and it's freezing and you're working in your hometown. They're on vacation traveling abroad. Or like in my instance, I was dealing with daylight savings and I was like, why is everyone late to their calls? Why am I missing people's calls? And finally, my VA and I figured out something happened with daylight savings in the calendar and we didn't update my software. So everything was just messed up. So that's just something you really want to be cognizant of. Another thing that is pretty obvious, but I think it's worth stating is strong Wi-Fi. Here's the thing that I think Americans forget is Europe is old, but they do have Wi-Fi. So people are always shocked when I'm like, oh, yeah, I got this at whatever, a, a store that we have in America and Europe. And people are like, they have that in Europe. I'm like, yes, they're cities. They're actually places that have stores and Wi-Fi and converters and everything. So I always see Americans tend to stock up early on all these things back home and go wild on Amazon with all these converters and packages and chargers. And I don't. I don't disagree with getting prepared and really planning ahead, but just remember when you get abroad, they have those things. They have converters, they have Wi-Fi, et cetera, but also check out strong Wi-Fi because I have been to places where they're like, we have Wi-Fi, but it's so slow. And if I'm doing a Zoom call or anything that requires any more bandwidth than opening my email, that's not really going to work. 
I remember in Germany, actually, our Wi-Fi in our flat was not working. So we had to connect to the bakery's Wi-Fi about five stories below us. I think you can imagine connecting to a bakery's Wi-Fi five stories below you isn't the best Wi-Fi. But I had so many clients at this point, I could not manage to just cancel all these calls. And we were in lockdown, so I could not go to a cafe. I could not do anything. So we had to beg our Wi-Fi company to come in and install it because my ex and I could not work. And we were literally freaking out because the bakery's Wi-Fi was like two bars. I had to do all my calls with my video off. I'm sure some of you remember this. If you worked with me in like fall of 2020, I was doing all my calls with my video off. There was a lot of like, hey, can you hear me? Oh wait, that glitched out. Uh, uh. Like it was just so bad and I'm like, this could have all been resolved if we set up the Wi-Fi before we got here or if we were a little more cognizant of how much we actually needed the Wi-Fi. So again, I know digital nomads, you obviously think that Wi-Fi is just going to be everywhere, but you need to remember some places do require a little extra setup or you should call and see if the place has strong Wi-Fi so that you don't get there and then your, your Zoom calls are glitching the entire time. Now, as far as quiet spaces... I think this is where co-working spaces become handy because a lot of them have phone booths or conference rooms, but I also find lobbies tend to be pretty quiet. So whether that's in a hostel or a hotel, check out the lobbies because what you could do is go work at a hotel lobby or go to a rooftop bar or a restaurant in a hotel, just order an appetizer or some coffee and you can work there. Basically, they just want to know that you're a paying customer. So I've done that a few times where I'm like, okay, this lobby looks pretty quiet. Let me just work here. And sometimes there's the lobbies are so big that it doesn't matter if you're staying there or not. You can just go in the corner and find a table and plug in and work. So there's always places to find. And guess what? Post on Instagram stories, post on Facebook if you're having a hard time being like, hey, I'm in the middle of, you know, Malaga, Spain. Does anyone know of cool co-working spaces or cafes that I can work at? And usually people will have recommendations or tag someone that they know to be able to help you. Okay, so finding remote work. Let's say you're like, this all sounds amazing, but like I don't have remote work. I don't have actual work to do. Well, first things first, if you are working at a corporate job, you can ask your company to allow you to work remote. Most of the people that are on my remote year trip are working for their corporate company abroad because of how much the pandemic has changed the work structure. A lot of these companies were okay with people working abroad. Now, I will say, I think some of these people are crazy because they're still working Eastern hours. So they're going to be working like 5 p.m. to midnight or 1 a.m. So that's something to consider is you might have to keep your normal work hours. But it's pretty cool if your company will let you go abroad. You can also find remote jobs online. Again, Google. Google is the best search resource ever, and it usually has everything you're looking for. So if you want to work abroad in, you know, Denmark, just Google remote jobs in Denmark and get even more specific. Maybe you're trying to find a skill set where it's editing. Look up editing jobs in Copenhagen, Denmark, and find out where your skill set is and then try to just plug that in Google into the city you want. Usually search terms will pop up to help you find that type of remote work. I also think it's really important that you create a skill set that you can use online and then you can find work by marketing yourself or using sites like Upwork or Fiverr. A lot of those sites let you advertise your services on there. So when people are going to search, like I'm looking for a graphic designer or a podcast editor, you can find that on those sites. Now, even if you do something physical like teach yoga or you pull tarot cards or you do energy readings, you can do all of this online. 
I taught yoga online actually for several months before I even started coaching. And all I needed was a quiet corner or a space to teach. And I was able to do that. Um, I've actually heard of someone teaching how to give haircuts online. So they were literally doing lessons on how to cut your hair and they were just showing the video and showing how to layer and cut and everything. And they turned that into a lesson that they could market online. So if you think about it, really everything can be taught or turned into a lesson. If you're a software developer, maybe you could create a mini course on how to code software, or maybe you could do private lessons teaching beginners how to do that. And that could be your remote job. Maybe you are a Pilates instructor. You could actually get a video camera or even record on your own iPhone, turn it around, get a stand and record Pilates videos and sell those online or teach private lessons online. I know people in LA, which by the way, LA is the mecca of health and wellness studios that hire Pilates instructors online that live in Monaco, France or London, England, just because you can do that now. They would rather pay money to get those online lessons from these very specific instructors in other countries versus going to a studio down the street in LA because you can do that. So I'm like, that's really cool. If you have an online skill, you can take it all over the place. You could also find a remote job by working for an actual remote company like the one I am going to be going on the trip with. So Remote Year, well, Remote Year is a company. They have staff. They need social media help. They need software developers. They need HR, right? So these types of companies usually are hiring, especially all over the world. If you think about it, they're trying to help people become remote workers. So they're hiring staff all over the globe. You could also work for a company like Airbnb, which actually announced that their whole workforce is remote permanently. So this is a really, really common thing that I think we're going to keep seeing is companies going remote because not only is that the culture now, but if you think about OPEX, which is operating expenses, these companies are saving so much money on offices, electricity, all that stuff by not having a headquarters or any physical space. So I think you're actually going to see a lot of companies start promoting remote work or even cutting out their physical spaces. A few other ways you can find remote work is doing exchange work. There's a website called Yoga Trade and you do yoga in exchange for working in a specific place. I know places that are really big in yoga like Costa Rica and Bali and India, they have a lot of jobs like that where you can stay at like a villa or a shala and teach yoga classes all week. So that's a way you could work abroad. You can work at hostels, hotels, hospitality companies. A lot of those places are built for remote temporary workers. So definitely check out those industries if you want to work abroad. And then lastly, maybe work for a company that has headquarters or offices in other cities so that they can transfer you there. For example, maybe you could work for a company that's headquartered in Sweden and then just ask to be transferred to the Swedish location. A lot of people that work abroad for corporate companies do that. They started in the US and then they just got transferred to the other country. So that could be an option for you too. All right, so meeting people is one of the last things I want to talk about because this is the best part, in my opinion, of working abroad. I did probably a five-week trip. Yeah, it was about five weeks last summer. And I was working part of it and I was vacationing part of it. And I remember at one point I was like, this is just really lonely. Like, it doesn't matter that I'm in Spain or Italy or Greece or anything. I am so lonely. I'm doing everything alone. I'm going to restaurants alone. I'm working alone. I'm going to bed alone. I'm going out alone. And I'm like, this isn't that fun. It was fun for like a week or two. But after five weeks, I was like, this is not 
conducive for like any type of lifestyle that I want to live. When I travel abroad, I think of meeting people and doing it all solo was just not feeling good at all. So I had to figure out how to meet people in a different way versus just hostels, which is usually how I met people. So some of the ways I would recommend are again, co-working spaces. A lot of co-working spaces have open format desks, meaning you don't have to book a specific conference room or a phone booth. They just have these large, big desks that everyone works at. And then you just naturally meet people. Oh, what are you working on? Or they'll hear what you're talking about on a call and then be like, oh, wait, you do podcasting? That's really cool. I have a podcast. And then you chat and now you're out to coffee and now you're hanging out. I think co-working spaces, especially when you think about remote work, are the ultimate way to meet people because you're meeting people that are working abroad just like you are. Also, meetup.com. I have personally not used it, but my cousin has, and he's like, this is the best website in the world slash app. Like there's something for everybody, for arts, for language, for writing, for anime, for anything. Like there's anything you're interested in is on meetup.com and you can filter out your interests and city. And then people are likely doing a meetup somewhere. So meetup.com is really, really interesting. I have actually met a lot of people on Bumble BFF. So I'll tell a quick story. When I was in Malaga, Spain, I was like, I am so sad from being alone. Like I cannot be alone. I need to meet somebody. So I went on Bumble BFF. I matched with this girl. We went and got dinner that night and it was an immediate connection. We got wine and then we realized we like the same type of wine. And then we switched to Tinto Veranos, which if you know, that's like my favorite drink ever. And then we realized that we both love those too. And then we got like the same orders and I'm like, okay, we're just connecting over similarities. And then we ended up talking all night. We hung out all weekend. And funny enough, the hostel prices for some reason started really, really spiking. I think because maybe restrictions got lifted, but all of a sudden all these travelers were coming in. I think it was summer. It was just this boom of people. And I was like, I've been traveling for a while and my finances are not exactly in the place to keep paying for this expensive hostel right now. And she's like, why don't you just stay with me? So I stayed with her. I was actually supposed to stay in her roommate's bed who was going to sleep on the couch. And for some reason that didn't work out. He didn't want to do that anymore. And so me and her had to split a twin bed in Malaga, Spain. And I met her on Bumble BFF. I told my mom that story and she nearly died. She thought I was going to get murdered. So uh, mom, don't worry, I'm alive. That girl and I are still friends. We're going to meet up in Portugal this year. And that's the beauty of that app is that it helps you filter out people that have similar interests to you. So when I matched with that girl on Bumble BFF, similar to how do you match someone on normal Bumble or Tinder, it shows their interests. So I could see that she was into yoga and spirituality and mindset and nature and the beach. And so when we met for dinner, We weren't like awkwardly sitting there. It's like, hey, let's talk about all the things that you put in your profile. And then we immediately made that connection. So then the next few days in Spain, she actually lived there. So she showed me all around. We went on this hike. We went to a cute restaurant. She showed me the best bars to go to. And that was just all from a Bumble BFF match. So I'm a big fan of Bumble BFF when traveling. Also, traveling with a remote company like I'm doing. I remember hearing about remote year probably four years ago and it was just so out of the realm of possibility for me because I was working at a corporate job in Chicago and I really liked my job in Chicago and I liked Chicago so going on this remote year trip they used to actually only do it for a year so I was like I can't just leave my job for a year or work abroad for a year and so it just kind of got put on the back burner and then this year when I was thinking about where I wanted to travel to again 
I was just thinking about that time in Spain and those other times I've traveled alone where I'm like, I just don't want to do this alone. Like I want to go with a group of people and I swear whether it was God, the universe, divine timing, something, I was like, wait a second, that company remote year is built for digital nomads. I need to look into that. And then I looked and they had updated all their trips. They now offer one month trips, four month trips, 12 month trips. They do retreats now. I know they're talking about doing like women's only sisterhood retreats in Costa Rica or Mexico. Like they're really branching out to accommodate all this remote work. And again, with all these companies going remote, these types of companies like remote year are only going to get bigger and bigger. There's also one called Hackers Paradise. I've seen one called Wi-Fi Warriors, and they're all different models. Like some of them you go for two weeks at a time. Some of them you could book a trip for three months at a time and go in and out as you please. They're all a bit different, but what my point is is that you can find a group of like-minded people to travel and work remote with, which is why I ended up taking the leap and doing this trip because I'm like, I'm gonna be around like-minded people for four months and we're all gonna be in that journey together versus me traveling alone and trying to meet people at every single stop. That was absolutely exhausting. And I mentioned this before, but posting in your stories and on social media, like asking people to set you up. I remember being in Berlin and I thought I knew people in Berlin and then I got there and I was like, I don't know anyone here actually. And so I remember posting being like, hey, I'm in Berlin. If anyone has recommendations, let me know. And I was kind of just keeping the recommendations open, like co-working spaces, bars, restaurants, cafes. And then people were like, oh, my cousin lives in Berlin. My best friend lives in Berlin. My mom's best friend lives in Berlin. Like you should meet up with her. And then all of a sudden I was set up with these people. This has actually happened a lot where people set me up with their friends. This happened in Australia. I did a yoga training in Bali and one of my roommates was a Dutch girl. And then when I went to Bondi Beach in Australia, she was like, oh, my best friend actually lives in Bondi Beach. You guys should meet up. And at first I was like, oh, I don't know. Like I just, I for some reason didn't like that idea because again, as a corporate American worker back in the day, that wasn't like a thing to just be randomly set up with strangers for lunch. It just felt so foreign to me. And I was like, you know what? Why not? Like I'll meet her for coffee. We'll have a quick chat. And then at least I can just say I met her. And we ended up hitting it off and we stayed friends the whole year. And now I'm still in touch with her. I actually just told her I'm coming to Europe and now we're trying to meet up. And that was because her friend set us up. So you never know what a friend setting you up can lead to. And now that I think about it, a lot of friends that I have abroad are because someone told me to meet them because they knew we would get along. And it's pretty much always worked out. And the last thing, similar to how you find an apartment in Bondi Beach is Facebook groups. I'm in so many Facebook groups, especially when I travel, I always tap into them. Like girls love traveling. There's another one called Changu Nomad Girls for people that live in Bali. Well, for girls that live in Bali. And it's full of people that are traveling there or living there. I remember when I was in the Changu one, I, I spent about, I think two weeks in Changu. And two weeks isn't even that long, but I was like, I just don't wanna be running around the whole time trying to figure out what to do. And I remember these girls set up this group text and WhatsApp to go surfing. So every single day they would text the group like, hey, we're going to go to this beach at 8 a.m. and then we're going to surf and then go to a cafe. I'm like, this is really cool that you could just wake up and have a plan simply from being in this group that got formed from a Facebook group. So I know Facebook is really annoying and a lot of us hate being on there, but I think the groups feature is really nice. And from my knowledge, there's a lot of new apps coming out to get you off Facebook like Geneva or Slack. So just check out like local community groups or wherever city you're traveling to, 
try to just Google that. Like Paris Digital Nomads Group or Bali Digital Nomads Group. And most likely you're going to find a group that's doing the same thing as you. Okay, well, we have covered a lot. We've talked about visas and the different options available. We've talked about how to extend your stay, where to stay, where to work, getting scrappy, and then some essential things to know before you go. We also talked about how to meet and connect with people to not feel so alone. And remember, remote work can feel chaotic at times, but if you plan and set yourself up before you go, you'll be fine. People want to help you. And this is just such a common thing people are doing now. There's so many resources, podcasts, websites, Facebook groups, etc., to help you get where you need to go, including me, including this podcast. I'm here to help you. And so if you've been considering working abroad or you don't know where to start, honestly, DM me, email me. I'm happy to help you. This is something that really means a lot to me because it's why I quit my job in Chicago. I told you guys I loved that job, but there was a period where I really wanted to travel abroad when I saw that that was a possibility. And now that I'm doing it, I want you to know it's possible. You don't have to be a millionaire. You don't have to work in rooftops of hotels. You don't have to be, you know, rolling in the dough. Like there's so many ways to work abroad and make it work for you. So I'm here to help anybody that wants to learn more. Well, speaking of asking for recommendations, I will be in Cape Town, South Africa when this airs. So now I'm going to ask you, what do I need to see? What do I need to do? What do you think I would regret not doing or seeing? Hit me up with all your tips. I have never been to Cape Town or South Africa, so I need everything you can possibly think of. I haven't heard a bad thing about it yet. Every time I tell someone I'm going to be there, they're like, oh. Oh my gosh, get ready. Cape Town's the best. So let me know again what you think is like an absolute must do and see. And if you like this episode, please leave a rating and review. It will reach more people and help in discovering this content. So go to Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the place where you write a review. Go ahead and screenshot the review after you write it and then send it to me info at chelsearife.com or DM me at chelsearife and then you'll be entered into the giveaway, which I'll pull at the end of July. Now, if you are writing down furiously all the notes about the visas and the co-working spaces and where to go and what to do, don't worry. I linked everything in the show notes so all the resources are there. And again, you can always DM me at Chelsea Rife or email me info at ChelseaRife.com. Stay tuned for more content like this. And I'm going to be adding a new segment where I answer listener questions. I need help naming it. But if you want to submit a question to the podcast, just check out the link in the show notes and you can submit a question. All right. Thanks for listening. And let me know your favorite part. Comment on my latest Instagram or share in your Instagram stories and stay tuned for a special community space coming soon. I'm trying to create my own group of digital nomad workers and people that are interested in this lifestyle. So stay tuned. I'll be talking more about that in the next few weeks. All right. Thanks for listening and see you next week.